0: His good-tempered authority would have been impressive, lovable, had the very fact of the man not been intolerable to them. Clovis was mutinous. He ought to take his damned horse out himself. Emerald pushed her plate away. He can't very well if he's in Manchester trying to save the house, can he? she said, and she got up and left the room by the other door so as not to encounter her mother or stepfather again he did not go after her. Clovis wasn't somebody who went after people. Rather, people tended to go after him. Unable to escape her misery, Emerald wandered up and down in the kitchen for a few moments, aggravating Florence Treves and Myrtle, and then went out into the garden by the side door. It was the last day of April. She felt the extraordinary softness of the season on her face and braced herself for a strict talking to. If it must be audible, she ought at least to get some distance from the house. The air was complicated with the smell of sharp new things emerging from damp soil. Small tatters of clouds dotted the watery sky. To her left was the door to the kitchen garden and stables. Ahead of her, reaching far and further, in the broadest geometrical sweep, was the country over which Stern presided. It spread out beneath and beyond, reaching into straining, dazzling blue distance, where the fields became indistinct and hills dissolved to nothing. The house stood on a piece of land so cleanly semicircular, so strictly rounded, that it might have been a cake stand left behind in the landscape by some refined society of giants. It was covered with deep, soft turf, as one might lay a thick rug over a table, and all the busy pattern of fields, hedges, cows, and villages scattered beyond, toy miniatures a child's imagination would produce. From the front of the house, the edge of the gardens formed a ha-ha between order and free nature. It was bordered by a knee-high sharp-trimmed box hedge, lest dogs should rush at it and fall off. Small children had been known to topple, although happily the slope, on falling, was much gentler than it first appeared. Clovis and Emerald, when much younger, had used to take running jumps off the apparent precipice, terrifying visitors unfamiliar with the topography, only to emerge laughing hilariously covered with dandelion fluff or mud or clinging claws of long couch grass. Emerald walked along the curve of the low box hedge with her head bowed like a lonely merry-go-round horse. This helpless grief over what amounts to a few rooms and a rather poor roof is irrational, she began, and frankly she stopped walking. Ludicrous! She turned her face to the house, the windows of which glowed variously. "'There's no use looking at me like that,' she said to it. She crossed the gravel and went towards the other part of the garden, where were the borders and sundial. And there's not even the excuse of ancestry,' she said aloud again, and indignant. And it was true. No generations of Torringtons had lived at Stern— No generations of Torringtons had lived anywhere particularly, as far as they knew. They were a wandering-needs-must sort of family, who made their livings disparately, in clerking, mills, or shipping, travelled to France for work in tailoring, or stopped at home in Somerset, Shropshire, or Suffolk, to play some minor role in greater projects, designing a lowly component of a reaching cathedral or a girded bridge. Some had been in business, one or two in service, there was an artist, some soldiers, all dead, all dead. Her father's life had been distinguished only by his having the daring to buy Stern. The house and land had been purchased rashly, at the peak of what transpired to be transient, too harsh to call it flukish, financial success. When, first married to Charlotte, And bathed in her adoration, he had thought Torrington might be the name of the sort of man whose family would live in such a house. Horace had loved Stern as he loved Charlotte, and later his children, loyally, generously, and gratefully. The children.